Welcome to the 12th episode of the Highlighter Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Isero. And the Highlighter Podcast is where you, the loyal subscribers of the newsletter, get to talk about the articles that you care about. And I'm really excited that you're all here, and I'm very, very happy that you're listening to this 12th episode. A lot of you were talking about last week's episode, where Principal Claire Green got to interview American historian Eric Foner. I thought that was one of the best episodes, and so if you liked it, I'm really happy that you did, and I'm very happy that you're listening to this one. Before I tell you who this week's guest is, I would like to announce uh, something pretty major. I'm very excited. The Highlighter now has a website, like a real website that's nice and clean and smooth and it looks nice. And what's great about it is that it has the podcast and the newsletter all in one place. And you can go and check it out right now. The URL, the address is highlighter.cc. And what's great is that you can go over there and listen to some past episodes. You can encourage your friends also to subscribe either to the podcast or to the newsletter all for one place. So I just wanted to announce that uh, because I'm, I'm pretty happy about it. Now, though, let's talk about the guest. I'm very excited to have this guest. This guest was a colleague of mine for a number of years in San Francisco as a teacher. He's a very good friend of mine. And now he's a professor at the University of St. Joseph in Connecticut, where he's a professor of education. He'll tell us a little bit more about that. But for right now, I'd like to introduce Tony Johnston to the show, and I'm very excited that he's here. Let's get right to that interview with uh, Professor Johnston. Hey, Tony, it's Mark. How are you? Hey, Mark. Good to hear from you. I'm great. Thanks for being on the show. Um, You are joining us live, well, I guess not live, but sort of live, from Connecticut. How, How is it over there? It is so beautiful right now. It's like this has been one of my favorite weekends of the year, actually, because the uh, fall is like really is, so fall started, right? And the leaves are just starting to figure that out. And so they're slowly starting to change. But temperature wise, the summer is like, I'm not ready to leave and I'm not going anywhere. So it's absolutely gorgeous. And in the next couple of weeks is going to be the most beautiful time of year to be in Connecticut. But that'll go fast and then the leaves will be gone and then the snow will get here. So I'm enjoying the moment as best I can. You know, we don't have snow here in sunny California and we don't have leaves that change, you know, so uh, I'm a little bit jealous. Um, so uh, maybe you could save a, a few for me. Um, so for the listeners out there, can you share a little bit about what you're up to, you know, as a professor of education at the University of St. Joseph? Like, what's your current thinking and what some of your current research interests? Uh, sure. So I work in the uh, School of Education here at St. Joe's, and I spend a lot of time preparing folks to be secondary teachers, middle school and high school teachers, uh, across all content areas. And um, and I work with graduate students uh, as well as undergraduate students. And it's great. I really I really love teaching, and um, I'm really excited to work with teachers here and help you know work with them to become the best teachers they can be. Uh, It is different coming from California and being and working out here. Connecticut is a much more 
uh, provincial place. And so even though it's a pretty small state, there's a lot of uh, folks who sort of tend to stay within their own community and world and don't often go into other parts of the state. And I have students who, for example, we had students in doing some uh, field experience stuff in Hartford, which is our capital, and students were saying they'd never been to Hartford before and never taken a bus before and things like that. So it's pretty fascinating uh, to be in the midst of all this and, and helping the students sort of navigate um, these different worlds. Uh, I do a lot of work around, in terms of my research around adolescent identity and how adolescent identities are shaped by engaging in different literacy practices. So that's sort of the main, main area of research. Uh, but I have found myself here doing a lot of work, much more than I ever expected I would be doing, um, talking about issues of race um, and talking about things like white privilege and things that out in the Bay Area were sort of, um, you know, common um, you know, fodder and, and discussion, and you could throw a rock and hit somebody who knew more than I do about those things. But um, out here, I find that there's more of a need for it. How's it going over there so far? In re in regards to with the work around uh, around uh, race, and then also I'm I'm assuming you're also working with um, perhaps white educators and white people. Um, yeah. So right. So yeah, it's going really well. Um, People are, are, are responsive for the most part. I work with schools here. I work with districts. Um, I'm actually dealing with a situation right now where there was an incident of violence at a school, and um, it stemmed from some students using some racist, uh, hateful language, and it led to some fighting. And so I was asked to come in and work with some of the students, uh, work with the teachers, and try to help them to to heal and think about why they were engaging in the you know those those behaviors um, and help them move forward. And I think there it's very much a reflection of what's going on in the world and um, sort of the national debate around race and how those, you know, as we know from being teachers, how when there's stuff happening in, in the world and, and nationally, they find, the, find its way into the classroom and how do teachers handle that and work with the students to help process and understand things. Um, so it's, it's going good and folks are really responsive and they're really hungry. Students are really, you know, I found students were extremely needing to have a space to kind of process some of these things, and they didn't have it. And without having that place to process, you know, high schoolers being who they are, they, they may not process it in the best uh, and most healthy ways. And I think that's kind of why the incident occurred to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. And it's really great that uh, the listeners can sort of um, connect and uh, perhaps even ask you um, about some of your work as well, because there's just a lot of educators who are listeners and out here in the Bay Area, even though maybe some of us might think that we know what we're talking about, there's obviously a whole lot of work to be done. Um, I'd like to ask you um, which article or what you found uh, interesting in Thursday's uh, newsletter and which article or articles you'd like to focus on. Well, I have to say, I was pretty anxious leading up to Thursday's, um, you know, wonderfully timed release uh, of the highlighter that I can always count on, um, because I didn't know what to expect, and I didn't know um, if I was going to be ready to discuss the articles that were going to come out. And one of the things that I love about the highlighter is that almost always there are, you know, a couple articles I probably would have read on my own, but then there's always ones that I never would bother to look at. And so I really appreciate having um, the, the sort of mix of, of articles. And so I want to speak briefly to one and then the, the piece on the fireflies. 
if that's okay. And then I would rather, and then we could spend more time, since I know more about these things, um, talking about the article by Wilbert Cooper, um, and then the AP piece. That sounds great. And I'm happy that you want to talk about the Fireflies article, because my email program sort of shows which articles are the most popular. And even though that one was one of my favorites in, in a while, I don't know why, but um, it actually hasn't been read yet very much by subscribers. So maybe you can talk it up a little bit. So, uh, yeah, what do you want to chat about with the Fireflies? Well, I think I just really connected to it because I live in this Connecticut, you know, suburban area that has lots of trees and I have a river behind my house and I've never had any of these things. I've always been a city kid. So I kind of think that the way the, the story the author tells is really her leaving that type of a world and then going, being a big city person and then going back to it. Um, but it was interesting for me. I feel like as an adult, like just like a kid full of like wonder and discovery and experiencing nature for the very first time in a way that uh, I never have before. I mean, obviously you go camping and you experience stuff, but it's different when it's right there in your, your own backyard. Um, I, so I just really, first of all, I think it was extremely well written. I mean, that's one of the things I really like about it. But there was this quote in it that I wanted to uh, reference, the author Ellie uh, uh, Sheckett, I think that's the last name. Um, she says, so many of us still feel the pull of nature, but increasingly don't know what to do with it or even how to be near it. And I really related to that, and I feel um, I'm trying to learn how to do that now because I live in a place where there's lots of access to nature. Um, but I just could really connect to that. And I also just really enjoyed that the researcher who was researching fireflies was named Faust. That was also very cool. <laughs> yeah, Faust is a great name to uh, research fireflies. I totally, yeah. I totally connect. There was a thing from my childhood, I think, about fireflies just because uh, my mom's side um, is from the farm, and so I just totally remember them as a kid, and especially in the summers. And then, of course, you know, mostly living out here in San Francisco, there's just not going to be any. And, and I was thinking, like, you know, you, you have two great kids who sort of grew up and, you know, the beginning of their lives um, in the Bay Area, and then now they're sort of in more space and, and sort of closer to nature. Have you found that they have had sort of like a second round of childhood as a result of being a little bit close? Because the, the issue out here in San Francisco is that you can get to nature, but you have to go and then it's like an event. Do you feel like your kids sort of have a different relationship now? Yeah, I mean, I think they're still kids, so I don't see them as having a second childhood. I'm hoping that they'll stay children as long as they can. Um, but I think, you know, we have fireflies here. I saw fireflies this summer, and one of the things that the article mentioned is that the ones that are in sort of the northeast region are still around. Um, so that was good to see. And, you know, we did see them this summer, and it, they ran outside and checked it out, and very, we're very excited by it. Uh, we have a an egret that comes to our backyard every morning and we have ducks and we have, I'm trying to learn how to garden and get the kids to help me with that. All stuff I never had to do before, never knew how to do. Um, so we are all kind of, the whole household is kind of, and my wife, she's from the Bronx and, and she doesn't know about these things either. So we're all kind of being kids together and figuring it all out and it's very fun. That's great. It's wonderful. Now do you want to go to the other articles about the AP sure. and also about, great, go ahead. So the first piece, I was forced to fight, now I'm learning to cry, um, was a very powerful piece and, and, and moving piece. Um, I, 
I just, there was parts of it that I struggled with a little bit in terms of I thought there was a bit of a lack of nuance at times and complexity, but but I still feel like it was a very strong article. Um, but one of the, my big takeaways, and I was curious to hear, Mark, what you thought about this, is, you know, is it is there a sense, um, and this would be tragic if this were true, but if there is this a sense for some black men who are interested in having identities that do not include hypermasculinity or toxic masculinity, um, is there a sense that they feel they might have to abandon their own communities and join others, perhaps as, you know, white folks, in order to, quote-unquote, be themselves? Yeah, I mean, it is very interesting. It just it just seems like the author is saying perhaps yes. And uh, he's I think he's about 30 years old now, and I've actually been reading a whole lot more first-person pieces by um, uh, African-American male writers who are around 30, and it seems like they are sort of reporting um, back their journey, and they're saying that they've gotten to a place where they feel like they've um, sort of grown up and um, made sense of, of, of how to be in different, in different communities and how to sort of um, feel sort of a little bit more um, confident in who they are. Um, I don't think that it has to be just one or the other, and, and maybe that's the nuance that you're speaking to. Um, mm-hmm. uh, do you think that that's true? I mean, I definitely see, you know, especially um, African-American uh, students, uh, male students in high school feeling totally confident, but I don't know how they got it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it seems like um, they've done some sort of work or maybe they're in a family or in a community that feels a little bit less rigid. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think that might also be just sort of cultural to, to the Bay Area. I mean, I've, I've always felt that, you know, in the Bay, and I grew up in San Francisco, and I've, I've always felt like there were more identities available to people, like more things that they can traverse and, and, and practices they could get engaged in that they may not have access to in other places. Um, and I, I mean, I remember my, my little white brother performing at one of the very first carnivals um, and dancing like flamenco in the middle of the street in the mission um, because he went to Buena Vista school and they were, they were invited to do that. And so I just think that there, there's something about the Bay that, you know, provides so many different types of communities and um, practices that you can engage in. But I don't get the sense that this author came from a world like that where there were these multiple um, sort of identities to engage in and, and to practice that were that were divergent and, and, and multiple and varied. Um, so that that is a challenge, and that's partly why I so uh, I'm happy to see they reference it sort of briefly in there. There's sort of this rising um, culture of young African-American men who are presenting themselves in different and unique ways that reject some of this hyper-masculinity, and he mentions, I think, um, Jada Smith, um, Will Smith's son, and but I also think about some of the fashion that's popular right now, um, some of the music that's being made by different artists that just allow for uh, a grander way of expressing one's one's identity. Yeah, and and with the students that I work all, uh, work with also, um, there's this interesting piece about reading as well, and I know that you can speak to this as well, where. 
there's a number of uh, African-American young men who are voracious readers, and they get to choose a little bit more um, about how to try on different identities. There's just a number of them um, who, who just talk to me about what they're reading. And sometimes it's um, to further, you know, sort of explore their identity, and sometimes it's to take on on different ones. It's just, it's pretty interesting, um, uh, you know, how that how that works. But unfortunately, it seems, what I did like about the article is that the author doesn't sort of go down the road of blaming um, the African-American community, which is what happens too often. You know, the stereotype of, oh, there's not enough space in the African-American community. Rather, you know, he says that it's a larger issue. He talks about the history, and he also talks about some of the um, the issues today by basically coming from racism. Did you find his argument there compelling? I did. And I do think that, you know, first of all, yay for reading. Reading is good. And one of the wonderful things about reading, um, and you and I have talked about this a lot, um, is how it allows folks to basically experience worlds and identities that they don't otherwise have access to. And reading is a very unique activity. Um, I, the closest thing I can think of is travel uh, in terms of how you, when you're engaged in a book deeply, thoughtfully, you carry that story with you as part of your own history and your own um, it sort of it leaves a trace on you that, that stays with you. And that's one of the things that's so powerful about reading. Um, it's a very unique encounter. You get to walk around in the head of somebody different from you for a while. And that is something that everyone should do, but it's especially important for people to do if they don't have a lot of access to other practices that they get to enjoy. And so that uh, it speaks to the second part of what you were saying, that, that because of racism and because of the world that we that we live in, so many students are so many students of color are forced to be that you know color first, and then all the other parts of their identity get suppressed um, in terms of how they're treated by society. And I think about my the students that I was working with at when I was doing my research around how identity is shaped by engaging with literacy. And one of the students who was in the study, um, we call him Jeffrey, one of the things he said is, I love this class because in here I get to be Jeffrey. And as soon as I leave, I'm just another black kid. And part of that came out of the fact that we were doing uh, a curriculum that was using literature not as the point of analysis, but the self as a point of analysis and the literature as a means um, by which to get there. And so he was spending a lot of time thinking about his own identity as we were reading uh, Sherman Alexie's, um the young adult novel, The Part-Time Diary of a, the Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian. I always forget the title. Um, so that experience for him became the point of really appreciating how literature and engaging in literacy allows him to explore these other parts of his identity, but that as soon as he left the classroom, how he was seen, how he was treated when he walked down the street, um, pushed all that deep down inside, and, and that was very hard for him. And he, he did a whole big project at the end around racism, and his big essential question was, everyone knows racism is bad, why does it still exist? Which I thought was a fantastic question. Yeah, it is, and thank you. Thank you for the story, and it might transition us well also to the AP article, just because it seems like the student felt very safe where he could be Jeffrey in the classroom, 
And I'm wondering, you know, because of this push in AP, does that continue? Like, can AP be a place that's actually safe where, where folks feel like uh, that, that they can be who they are? Did you want to speak a little bit about the AP article? Sure. I mean, the AP article really presented a lot of the complexities, and I, I could certainly sympathize with it. Um, I taught AP literature, uh, English literature, when I was teaching for about, I want to say, four years. And I always had um, students who, for whom English was a second language. Um, I had uh, students who were African-American students. Um, and I had a lot of students who just did not were not strong readers coming into high school and needed a lot of support to get through the class. At the same time, most of the students did not pass the AP exam, and they also said it was one of the most rewarding experiences that they had in high school was being in those classes. So it is a serious tension, and it shouldn't be, I think I agree with the article that it shouldn't be AP that offers that. Like, we should find ways to create spaces in schools for students to feel good about their academic identities and to be challenged and pushed and, um, and, and have the chance to reach higher expectations without having to rely on the college board. But uh, too often, that, that's often how it gets played out. And, you know, one of the things about being out here in Connecticut is it's a far more... Um, what you would think of as traditional schooling and, and than, than there is in the Bay. And there's a lot of honors classes and remedial classes and things like that. And my, I struggle with it myself because my son just started high school. He's a freshman. And I really wanted him to take at least one honors class when he started high school because I felt like that would help him feel a little more connected to school and help his academic identity, which tends to be pretty fragile. And I talked to his English teacher, and I was like, listen, I really think he should take AP, uh, not AP, but honors English as a freshman. And she completely shot it down, and she said he's not ready, and he can't do it, and he's not gonna, he doesn't have the abstract thinking skills and things like that. And it was very upsetting to me, first of all, that a teacher would speak that way. Um, but there was this sense of, you know, there's a group of kids that we see as special, and they belong, and the rest of you are going to take these other classes. And... My son has said multiple times since he started school, I wish I had taken at least one honors class. And now he's sort of stuck in this track. And the school touts its uh, ability to move kids in and out of those quote-unquote tracks. Uh, so we'll, we'll see if that's actually the case. Yeah, I like your point about academic identity as well. Um, in my role, I see students in the ninth and 10th grade sort of trying on an academic identity. And, and in some ways, what they do is they carry their backpacks around. And if they take them off, that means that they're going to stick around in a class. And, and it gets me thinking about um, AP as well, because in my experience, you know, I, I did teach it once. I was really frustrated that the numbers of pass rate um, was low, but ultimately the same thing happened. You know, the students said, okay, we didn't pass, but that was like one of the best classes. And I wonder if it is about academic identity sort of saying, you know, I'm going for something. And, and you know, I don't want to be defensive by saying like, oh, well, they still had a great time even though they didn't pass. But for some reason, the students, my students also didn't take it too badly when they didn't uh, when they didn't pass and the weird thing though is that whenever I talk to friends and colleagues who have taught mostly in suburban schools they don't know about this huge gap um, because for the most part many of their students if not all their students pass the AP 
And um, so I, I really appreciated the article just for bringing up all the issues, even though the issues are are tough are tough to resolve. I mean, how did you, when you were teaching AP, how did you go back and forth between this issue of maybe passing the test versus just having a really great experience? I mean, I remember, for example, that you changed the traditional author study to one, um, like a theme study, so that students could connect a little bit more. But, but how, did you, how did you wrestle with this dichotomy or this uh, dilemma? Well, I definitely think... Um we were very honest from the start, and we gave students the test early at the very beginning, and we went through it together, and I said, this is the amount of people who tend to pass, and, you know, this is the national average, and this is the average that we've had in, as a school, and I said, we're in this class. We are going to prepare for this test, and we are also, um, with that, going to fall in love with reading, and, and we're going to improve drastically as writers, and so those those were the objectives of the class, and it wasn't... Um, and I, I credit my my um, department chair, uh, Diero, who Michelle Diero, who said to me, you know, it's it's not about one or the other. You have to be shooting for both at all times, and that's what we did. And I think that helped raise the level of rigor, and it raised the expectations for students. And I think there is something about that. There, you know, for better or worse, there's a name brand aspect to it. To be able to say, I took an AP class, and I got you know a B in that class. That's a pretty powerful thing. So we did a lot of stuff. We did the theme study project where students selected um, a theme that spoke to, I always ask them, you know, what do you think about when you can't fall asleep at night as a way to begin discussions about the themes that they care deeply about. And then we find a bunch of books that are a mix of sort of classic books that they could talk about on the AP exam when they have to answer those questions where you, you reference something you've read, um, as well as some other books that might be more culturally responsive to the students we had in the class. And they wrote um, a major paper that was, for many of them, far more rewarding and far more, in some ways, challenging than the actual AP exam itself. Yeah, and and it seems like what what happened was not just did they see themselves and also fall in love with reading and get better at at writing, but it, it seems like they really accelerated um, their growth in reading. I always found out, I still think that reading is the most important thing, and yet because it's a little hidden, it's not as out there as writing. It's a little bit um, harder to unearth and, and to push. And and I feel like only sometimes have I been able as a teacher to sort of like make reading, you know, totally visible. Um, I wanted to, uh, we are, unfortunately, Tony, we are running a little bit out of time, but I wanted to give you the space to talk a little bit to teachers here at the beginning of the year. Um, over here in California, we start early. And so teachers are in their fourth and fifth weeks at this point. And so this is where the honeymoon is over. And you <laughs> taught English, and now you're a professor, and you prepare teachers. We have in the listening group uh, a number of teachers as well as uh, a number of new teachers. What would you say to them here at the end of September? Hmm. Well, I think... I think I would say to them, first of all, thank you for being a teacher. We, we, we really need more teachers. We need good teachers. Uh, we need effective teachers. Uh, we need teachers who can teach you know, across difference. Um, and so just thank you for, for doing this very, very difficult and challenging and super rewarding work. And I um, always want to give teachers more 
more love. Um, but I would also say that, you know, it's, it's a frustrating time. And one of the things that I found after that honeymoon ends with students, and I'm just speaking about my own experience, but maybe people can relate, is that this, sometimes these connections that we have with our students are extremely powerful and, and we feel deeply connected to their lives and their learning and they feel connected to us. And if we work in schools that support those types of relationships, because we all know that those relationships are key to learning, um, those things, those relationships go, they have their, their challenges along the way. And it's about this time of year that sometimes the students, they're, they're getting frustrated and they're going to need a place to direct that anger. And this is the time of year when sometimes the teachers are the ones that have to bear that wrath. And I always tell teachers, you have to remember that they, at this time, they don't see you as the human being who loves them. They see you as an extension of uh, what can be a very oppressive institution. And, you know, you're just, you know, like a robot at that point. And then you shut down and you go in the closet and turn yourself back on again at 8 a.m. when they walk in the door. But those same students that are directing that anger and rage at you will often a week or so later be the one who gives you a hug in the hallway and tells you all about her weekend. So I think it's just, you know, to sort of stay the course and to roll with it and to know that they're trying to figure things out and it's, it's, they're in a frustrating place sometimes at this time of year. Um, but that, that they will, they will come back to you as long as, and you have to be just there, be present, be consistent. Um, and, and keep holding those high expectations that you have for them. Thank you for that, Tony. And, and thanks for being on the show. And I hope you have a, a great rest of your weekend over in Connecticut. Thank you very much. Well, it's pretty clear that I can talk with the wonderful Tony Johnston for a long time. And I hope you agree, because he's just totally awesome and interesting and has done a lot of great stuff in education. So hopefully you enjoyed our conversation. If you have any comments about it or if you want to reach out to Tony, you can do so by emailing me at my new email, which is mark at highlighter.cc. So that's one way that you can let me know about what you thought about this episode, or if you want to talk to Tony directly, just email me there. Also, I'm totally excited. People are starting to like the show on iTunes and leave reviews and comments. So far, three wonderful subscribers have done so, all five stars, which I appreciate. So if you would like, head on over to iTunes and leave a review. I think that that's how... I guess the podcast gets known and, and discoverable by, by the masses. So please do that. And also, if you would like, get the word out, either about the podcast or about the newsletter, which, of course, will come out yet again this Thursday at 9.10 a.m. Head on over to the new website, highlighter.cc, and check out what's there. And otherwise, just have a great, wonderful start of your week. And I look forward to seeing you over at the newsletter this Thursday. Have a great week.